This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 55 of the World Beyond War podcast. It's December 2023, and today I'm bringing with me a friend for the very simple reason that I've been reading her posts on social media since the start of the current Israel-Gaza-Palestine catastrophe two and a half months ago. And I noticed she has a lot to say, so I thought I'd invite her here to say it. Jamila Vincent is a writer, photographer, actor, gardener, and dabbler in various other arts and crafts, who also has a day job wrangling healthcare data. Her photography has been featured on book covers and in magazines and newspapers, as well as in private collections all over the world. Her writing has appeared in anthologies, magazines, journals, and several websites, including her sporadically maintained blog, Jamila.net. She lives in Michigan full-time with her husband and her dog, and sometimes with two kids. She's also a pretty expressive voice on Instagram and other social media. So let's say hi, Jamila. Hello. It's great to have you here. Um, Glad to be here. I think we may as well just get busy right away with these serious topics. Okay. Um, I referred above to the current Israel-Gaza-Palestine catastrophe. Sometimes I call it disaster. I try not to call it war because yeah. that really normalizes it. That really just makes it seem like, oh, there's another war. Yeah. It's a catastrophe. Tell us what you have been experiencing since... October 7th. You know, honestly, it's it's just been, I've seen a lot on social media and um, I have been following folks, uh, Palestinian folks specifically, to kind of learn about what, what is going on and, and see what's going on on the ground. And as I've been following folks and seeing, you know, their stories and their, um, specifically on Instagram, seeing folks' stories and reels and posts um it you know it's overwhelming to watch and listen to um the horrors that folks in gaza are experiencing on a daily basis um this has been going on for this specific conflict is has been going on for um more than 80 days and it's uh it's absolutely horrific uh, so it's um it's it's a it's a weird thing to see especially on a place like Instagram where um images are so typically curated for public mm -hmm. consumption um and so uh it can be a bit jarring to watch Instagram stories you know like I'll check them usually a couple times a day and see you know these horrific images of bodies being pulled out of rubble um neighborhoods being destroyed and then you know it'll switch to the next one where it's somebody with like posting christmas lights yeah. <laughs> it's like it's it can be you know uh it, it's a bit jarring because it feels somewhat like um experiencing two different worlds like i'm seeing these things and uh as you mentioned you invited me here because i'm posting about these things and then it seems like there's uh, like a disconnect with other folks and like the world at large just seems to be kind of just going on, like nothing's happening. And so it's, the internet has always been a weird place to be, but it's feels even more so now like a weird place to be. I believe the internet is a microcosm of the world. Um, mm -hmm. So the world is a weird place to be. Correct. 
especially when we're going around killing each other for profit and wealth generation. I have experienced the same thing. The word that I use for this disconnect is cognitive dissonance, because I took a few psychology classes in college. Um, the world has become very surreal. I mean, I do give the world credit for being more aware of these horrors, I think, than in recent past. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that um, at least, you know, we have the United Nations trying to say, hey, there's a genocide going on right now and we should stop it right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at least we have Pope Francis. I'm not sure how you feel about Pope Francis. That's a controversial name, but he's regularly saying, let me help make peace, you know. Right. And so at least the world is paying attention. At the same time, I can't remember any time in history when a country committed a genocide in plain sight as, as garishly as Israel is doing right now. The death toll as of today is like 21,000 human beings. Right. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It, I think, you know, you see it. And the difference now is that you know, as opposed to other, um, I, I know I agree with you about not calling this a uh, conflict of, or uh, this genocide a war. Right. Um, but there have been wars in the past that, you know, have happened and we've known that there have been horrors and atrocities going on. The difference now is that it's being streamed live on your phone. You can just, I mean, I could open Instagram right now and I guarantee I would see like a video of some, something horrific that has happened today. And, yeah. um, and that's different than I've ever experienced. Before. In other words, what you would see today is different from what you would have seen yesterday. And it's different from, you know, basically every day there are new horrors. Yes. And yeah, we have never experienced and, you know, we should put this into context. And as part of World Beyond War, you know, we have a lot of talks and conferences and meetings and we often have to remind each other, uh, you know, as bad as things are, they all they always sucked. Um, mm -hmm. Although but but, there, but uh, you know, I would I would say there's nothing that compares to um, August 1945 when hundreds of thousands were vaporized in a single moment. You yeah. know? Um, at the same time. Nobody knew that that was happening in advance outside in the world. Like we, like with Palestine, with Gaza, we all have this feeling like we we should be stopping it, and we don't know how to stop it. And, and we there was no such thing in Hiroshima um, because nobody but a few people knew that it was going to happen. Right, and I think you know now there are things that you. I, there are limited things that you feel like you can do, right? Like I can contact my representatives in Congress um, yeah. and great, but like that, it feels, yeah. it feels like a dead end. Right. Um, and you, people yeah, sure. I've seen disruptive action, people protesting and, um, and that's great also, but like, what, what is the, what is the thing that will, I mean, do we, like, what are people waiting for at this point? Um, is it just for the Palestinians living in Gaza to no longer exist? Mm -hmm. um, 
or, you know, to force them into Egypt or Jordan or like what, what is the, what's the, is it? There is is a madness to Netanyahu's non-strategy. It would be insane to call it a strategy. It's not a strategy. It's a suicide leap into genocide but there is there is a madness to it that that is something new because you're right there isn't now i mean let me let me try to answer the way i think some of my friends answer like you i have a variety of friends of different persuasions including many who you know were were so devastated by the the death toll of a thousand Mm -hmm. on october 7th that they stopped paying attention after even people who are decent people who should speak up against 21,000 dead in Gaza were so devastated when a thousand were killed by Hamas on October 7th that they stopped opening their eyes after that, or, you know, or what I can't even characterize, but the closest thing that anybody could attempt to an answer is that they are trying to remove Hamas without killing the people of Gaza. But what we all know is that Hamas is the government that the people of Gaza are stuck with because they're a terrified war zone that's yeah. been constantly bombed and and attacked and besieged. It's hard when you're a besieged war zone to have a coherent government. Right. So I do think that there is a pretense of a goal, which is to remove Hamas. But I think we all know that um, Israel is strengthening Hamas. I, th- I don't know if we need to characterize what is Hamas. That's That would be a podcast episode in itself, right. but strengthening its perceived enemy. Well, I feel that it's sort of like the war on terror that the United States was fighting in the early 2000s, yep. um, which is has been shown over time that we've experienced other things such as ISIS and other atrocities and like what is happening in Afghanistan now, like we just like destabilized it and then left. Right. You know, the argument in the early two thousands against George W. Bush's war on terror was that you can't fight an idea. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that that is still true. How many people may be radical? I don't know, maybe radicalized by this. Like I can't imagine watching my entire family die and then, not feeling like I had an enemy. Right. Um, like one of those things, because I don't believe in um, terrorism, per, you know what I mean? Like I don't believe in killing people to meet your goals. Um, but what I also- a, What a concept to not believe in killing people to meet your goals, yeah. But yeah, right. But I also, there are people out there who are gonna want revenge and we're creating more of them every minute Um, And that seems contrary to if your goal is to eradicate, uh, eradicate Hamas, then it seems contrary to that goal to just kill everybody. I also am skeptical that with the military might that Israel has that and the training that Israel has that they're not able to like specialize a little bit more instead of bombing the whole area. So Right. It's absolutely clear that the only thing they are doing is planting seeds for more conflict. Because as you say, if your family is killed, you 
have a reduced stake in right. peace. That's not how you make peace. And I constantly point to the fact that the defining disaster of our era, World War II, was caused by the resentment for the loss of World War I. And the only war that was worse than World War I was World War II. It's completely clear to anybody who steps away from propaganda about the good war and the greatest yeah. generation that the reason World War II happened was because Germany was contesting the loss of World War I. It's the oldest story in the world, and we're seeing it happen again. We know that everybody knows this. You and I are speaking the truth that everybody knows. Israel cannot destroy Palestinian independence. What we believe in at World Beyond War is this thing called diplomacy, negotiation, compromise, peacemaking, you know? And the, the amazing thing is that while so many people will mm -hmm say that there is no solution to this, yeah. there absolutely is a solution. Look at how they came to a compromise in Northern Ireland. Look at how they ended apartheid in South Africa. What people may not remember is that before they were able to come to a compromise in Northern Ireland, the Irish and English hated each other just as much as so-called Israelis and Palestinians hate each other. Um, and that they were very happy to make peace after decades, generations of war and terrorism and bombings. and Yeah, I mean, everybody all over the world all wants the same things, right? right? You all, I mean, at, at your yep. core, everybody wants like a place mm -hmm. to live and food to eat and to be able to take care of their families. And what I'm seeing and what I, it hurts my heart, you know, and, um, and I can't really fathom what it's like to, start the day with your family and know that like you don't necessarily have enough food to eat and yeah. you don't know is everybody going to be safe all day is everybody that you start the day with you are you going to end the day with them like i i can't imagine living with that for as long as this has been going on too i mean this is two and a half months heading into like nearly three the idea that if you were to have an an illness or an accident, you can't safely go to a hospital and get healthcare right. because um, the healthcare is being taken up by bomb victims. And there's another bomb dropping today, you know, right. in your neighborhood. And what if you're, you know, what if you have a disability? What, you know, there's, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Like you uh, it just, it's completely upended the fabric of daily life and to, you know, like I, right. it's just right. to what end? You know, um, so. Speaking of family life, can you tell us about your own background, which may or may not be, you know, relevant to all of this? My background is uh, my mom is a, a American Christian. She's from Arkansas originally and um, grew up mostly in, in Michigan. And uh, my dad was an immigrant from Yemen and he was Muslim. Um, and so uh, I kind of live in the um, between world mm -hmm. of those two cultures. Uh, I was raised Christian, um, so there's that. But I spent a lot of time as a kid um, around Yemeni immigrants. There were quite a few that had come to the States in the 70s and the 80s. And there was a 
community of folks in Coldwater, Michigan, um, which is where my dad had wound up. And so I spent a lot of time around immigrants as a as a kid. I would also say you have a name that a beautiful name that you know it, I would say. Yep. sort of announces your Arab background. Yes, my name is Jamila. It means beautiful in Arabic. Um, although it's funny, a lot of people who haven't met or spoken to me, if they only see my name, sometimes they'll they'll tell me, oh, I thought you were going to be black. So I get that. <laughs> um, and then I'm like, oh, well, um, okay. You know, like, yeah. okay. Um, From there, yeah. <laughs> people, people never know what, you know, People ask me a lot of questions about my ethnicity. I joke that I'm ambiguously brown. Um, so, um, you know, people will common is people assume that I'm Latina. Um, people will go, oh, I thought you must be Italian or I thought you must be this. And I'm like, no, I'm I'm Middle Eastern. Oh, okay, okay. You know, right. uh, it's, it's one of those things like... Um, like gender that people really want to pigeonhole you. Mm-hmm. So um, they want to, I, I, they want to know what box to put you in. Definitely. So boxes, boxes, so many boxes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I, by the way, I'm interested that your father is from Yemen because mm-hmm. aside from the Israel Gaza Palestine catastrophe, there's the Saudi Arabia Yemen catastrophe. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you tell us anything about being Yemeni, which I don't know much about? I will be honest and say that like my, my dad and I weren't super close. And sometimes I, um, so I didn't grow up with him as like a, a dad so much, but um, we were, we had, we worked it out kind of by the end. We, we loved each other. We just were not, we didn't have a super close relationship. Um, uh, but he had he had passed away before the a lot of the horrific stuff that we were hearing about that was happening in Yemen was going on with the um war between like the Houthis and um Saudi Arabia and I had wished a lot that he was around so I could get his opinion on it because he did have opinions about um stuff that was going on and was really candid about those things. But, um, Mm -hmm. that was, you know, for me, it was one of those things I remember, um, paying attention to the news and hearing that, you know, this at the time was the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, um, with, uh, Yemenis being starved and that, you know, there were cholera outbreaks and, you know, just, you name the horrors. And, um, I remember, putting things on Facebook and I remember contacting, um, my senators and, um, you know, feeling largely the same that I feel today. Like people might go, Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, that's sad. And that might be the extent of it. Um, and getting a real sense that, you know, people don't care about, um, I think that people don't care about, things that happen in the Middle East, because I get the impression that there is kind of a sense that this is what these folks are always doing. So, you know, they're always fighting over there. So, um, yeah, that's a really horrific lie. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think I, I love everything you're saying, so I don't want to divert this at all, but as a 
American Jew, so-called American. I am definitely a Jew. I sometimes have a question mark on whether I want to call myself an American. I'm not too proud of that label lately. But um, as an American Jew, I often hear that Jews and Arabs um, are are doomed to fight forever. And the again, the cognitive dissonance is amazing because while there was terrible terrible relationships between Jews and Christians in Europe, Jews and Muslims in the entire area, you know, of the, the former Ottoman Empire was marked by peaceful coexistence, which is not to say in a millennia that you can't find one example of an atrocity, but the atrocities were nothing compared to the atrocities between Jews and Christians in Europe. The fact is that Jews and Arabs and Jews and Muslims and Jews and Persians um, have a long history of getting along great together, yeah. <laughs> um, but nobody knows that. So yeah, I think this is definitely a personal thing for both yeah, of us. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I, I think that um, to kind of tie back to what we were talking about with Gaza, so so they're, they're kind of at an, a pause in the fighting in Yemen right now. Um, but mm-hmm. having watched that happen for a long time, um, I remember uh, posting a picture. It was a, you know, this has been a few years ago now, but posting a picture, it was of a, a Yemeni girl um, who, you know, you could see all of her ribs and, and she was starving. And it's uh, it's horrific in one of these photos that is meant to like pull on your heartstrings, right? And I remember seeing these as a kid, um, you know, because I grew up in the 80s. So I remember We Are the World and, and, and all, you know, mm-hmm. like, and it was reminiscent of the things that I had seen when I was a kid. And um, I I know social media is like a different beast than um, than what I experienced growing up in that um, the experience is largely fractured and not everybody is seeing the same things at the same times. Right. But yeah, yes. but um, it I did feel like, why is this tragedy, you know, why do these posts kind of, fall like a lead balloon why why don't people care about this tragedy is it because there's so many and we get tragedy burnout um or is it because you know well this is just you know what's happening over there people and i'm not i'm not really sure or is there a balance between you know somewhere in between i don't i don't know the answer I'm curious, do you use TikTok? Yeah. I am generationally far from TikTok. However, I do really appreciate a very lively place for activist messaging. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. that it's not getting person personal coverage from people on social media. I actually think people are talking about it. I think the algorithms, as we know, I'm not saying anything new here, are suppressing it. I think one reason that our so-called... yeah. Congress is trying to um, ban TikTok <laughs> is because TikTok doesn't algorithmically, yeah. um, you know, hide political messaging, whereas Instagram, which yeah. is owned by Facebook, does. I mean, the, the only reason I see your posts, Jamila, is that I am personally your friend. You're not being boosted by any right. algorithm. No, I'm definitely not. And I have noticed that since um, October, so since I've um, been posting 
about Palestine and posting Palestinian voices, I have seen a decrease in engagement. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, because they're just not showing my posts to people. And I don't think we're just talking about Instagram here. Yeah. Um, curious, you identified that you grew up Christian. Do you see uh, mm -hmm. a Christian peace-loving community? Is there a pacifist sensibility in the I mean, Christianity that you know of? I uh, probably not. I grew up in a, I mean, it was evangelical, um, so largely conservative um, evangelical Christianity, um, even in the last 20 or so years has, you know, become even, I believe more conservative than it was when I was growing up, but it was pretty, pretty conservative. Um, I, I tended to always stick out, um, within the church community because there were some things that, you know, are pretty well established as, um, evangelical doctrine that I just didn't ever quite buy into such as like um I used to get asked on a regular basis how I felt about the fact that if my father didn't convert he was going to go to hell and I would just be like well I don't believe in that but um you know that's pretty well established uh within Christian evangelicalism that you know anybody who isn't in the fold is you know, that's a very rigid uh, belief system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What if, like, I was actually hoping you were going to say, yes, they, they look yeah. these because, you know, like I, I was praising Pope Francis before. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when I, I go around talking to people about this all the time, mm -hmm. I often talk about um, Pope Francis as an example of somebody who could possibly lead a diplomacy effort. So, I, yeah, I think the, the, the church that I grew up in tended, it tended to be very conservative. Um, and so, and unfortunately conservative, being a conservative Christian tends to also be pro armed conflict. Um, so that's not good. That's yeah. The I, New right. Did they skip that book? No. Um, it's just, sorry, that was rude, but yeah, no, it's, uh, the Sermon I, on the Mount and all, you know? Yeah, no, I think that people believe in that and that it's nice, but I think that, you know, like also there's a belief that- um, You gotta kill the enemies first. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this belief in like, yeah, in conquering your enemies and um, sure, we'll pray that, you know, people turn, but that there, I don't see a lot of people that are against like when, I was active in the church. Like I didn't see people that were against like going into Iraq or, you know, yeah. um, things like that. So, well, um, yeah. Speaking for my sort of ethnic background, which would be Brooklyn, Queens and Long Island, New York. Um, mm -hmm. There is very little pacifist sense among any religion. The religions tend to be either Catholic, which is why I keep mentioning Pope Francis. And I have to mm -hmm. keep remembering that Pope Francis is very different from evangelical, you know, Christianity. But um, yeah. but but whether Catholic or Jewish, there is very little um, <laughs> love of peace in, in any religious communities I've seen. I mean, when I go to a synagogue or, you know, a, a Jewish gathering, there's often a sense that we're wishing for for peace for the Jews, but we're not wishing right. for peace for the world. And that's disgusting. That's horrible. That's not 
what the Jewish, you know, religion is supposed to teach, that means that the, the people who are running these services don't know what they're doing because they should be preaching peace for the world, not for Jews. Um, so I think yeah. it's all similar. Yeah. And I would say, you know, like one of the things that about, uh, evangelicalism that kind of dovetails into our conversation is that there's this belief in the apocalypse and Armageddon, which is of course the ultimate armed conflict. And um, so a lot of Christians are very pro Israel Mm -hmm. and making sure that everything works out for Israel. So that basically, so that Armageddon can happen, which is a, kind of a bizarre belief system well, to me. I've heard but, this as the Mike Pompeo doctrine, right? I mean, didn't right. the former secretary of state under so-called yes. President Trump, um, yeah, who literally has cited this. It's just, it's just absolutely terrifying that these people are in charge of the United States military. He was the secretary of state. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. What the, um, what the fuck? It was, it was hard to keep keep track of who was who under I, yeah. <laughs> the Trump administration because it kept changing up yeah. But um, Let's yeah, get straight. The United States Secretary of State believed in the doctrine that you just described that apocalypse will come through Israel defeating um, Palestine. Right, and so there are people that are very heavily invested in that, and it's that is that is real. That wasn't a thing that I personally grew up believing I always thought that that was kind of bizarre but I do because I always had questions about um I was always a pest in this way I always had questions about like why would these people go to heaven and these people go to hell and why is this this and you know whatever so I was I had a hard time digesting that belief but you know ultimately if you want the belief system that we want the Jews to take over Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and all of that stuff so that we can have Armageddon. But yeah. then when Armageddon happens, they don't believe that the Jews are going to go to heaven. <laughs> right. So like, it's, well, it's to our world. It's, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird circular argument. Let's just say of, there's, like, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of cognitive dissonance going around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're saying very sensible and rational things. I'm hearing myself be sarcastic in the things I'm saying. And, you know, <laughs> we should both remember that we are generalizing about large groups yeah. of religious, you know, communities. The reason I think both of us are so sad that Christian and Jewish groups in America aren't for peace is that we both you know, have some regard for these communities and wish that they would um, wake up, wake up. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. just wake I mean, up. I think, you know, ultimately, like when you, it's, it's hard to, um, for me, it's hard to reconcile belief in Jesus who was, you know, constantly talking about having acting out of peace and love and mercy for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also believing in, you know, not that for anybody who isn't like you is it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's uh, deeply illogical and I can't reconcile the two things. I also want to say that the, um, so-called pro-war Jewish position is also deeply illogical 
I also have to say, and you know, part of this, I'm just, I just need to yell this to the world and use my, my little podcast to do that. Um, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are being exploited by war profiteers. And there's a lot of people who have no problem turning up the heat on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, in part by exaggerating and using hyperbole, which happens a lot with incidents of anti-Semitism, which also fly through social media. You know, mm-hmm. I have a very large Jewish presence on my social media because it's my entire family. Um, and when there's an anti-Semitic outrage, that just flies all over social media and gets a lot of attention. And yeah. what this is doing is creating a fear which is exploited. And it works this exact same way for Islamophobia, um, obviously. I mean, you mentioned before how the the laughably mistitled War on Terror, which was a gift to terror, um, mm-hmm. the Bush administration led to the creation of ISIS. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that the the thing that I've, I've seen and, you know, since um, I feel like I, as an adult, my whole adulthood has been kind of like framed in so far by um, things happening in the Middle East, just shit happening in the Middle East. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, I turned my, I turned 22 on 9-11 and um, it's been 22 years and I'm, watching what's happening in Palestine and you know it's this othering of people that makes it not quote unquote okay right like I don't believe it's okay obviously but this idea that well you know because there's the stereotype of the Arab that is angry and they're loud and they're you know hyper-religious and they're conservative and they hate anybody who has any slightly Western mindset about anything. And, you know, like you can go down the list and um, like brutish and boorish and the whole, the whole thing. And it's like, well, the reality is, you know, people are just people and sure there are brutish, boorish Arabs and there are brutish, boorish white guys. And, you know, you pick, pick, right. Um, But for me, one of the things, and, you know, you mentioned, when we started this conversation that you would ask me to be here because of things that I was posting on social media. And one of the things that's been important to me to post on social media has been things that humanize Arabs, specifically Mm -hmm. Arab men, because I feel like Arab men get um, the worst of the stereotype, Mm -hmm. you know, as though their, their lives are expendable and it's, you know, like people will talk about the women and children and there's been so many women and children. And yes, that is horrible. And I agree. And it's heartbreaking to see like these tiny bodies, you know, getting pulled out of rubble and it's, it's horrible. But, you know, then I also see these men in like sandals and t-shirts digging their families out with their bare hands mm-hmm. and going like, this is, they, you know, they deserve to live too. And um, they deserve to not be digging their families out of the, like the ruins of their home that had been standing just a few moments earlier with their bare hands. Like, well, you know, I can't, like, I can't imagine actively grieving and then also trying to like dig my family out of a 
bombed out buildings. Let's also you know? mention that before October 7th, they had a right to live in a city that was not besieged. Yeah. We might read a, a book written 200 years ago about the siege of a city, but Gaza was under siege. Um, so even before October 7th, and this, of course, is what exploded in the violence of October 7th, because it's the oldest goddamn story in the world. That's what we've been talking about this entire interview. Mm -hmm that violence and oppression breeds violence and oppression and hatred. Yeah. These men and women all deserve to have normal lives. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. super important to me um, to just, it, it seems like such a dumb thing to have to say, but it's super important to me to just continually remind folks like, Hey, these are humans. Um, they're people who love their family. Like Arabs are, they are, it's a very fam family oriented culture. Um, one thing that we don't see, and this is something that I'm particularly sensitive to, but um, my entire life, like in pop culture, imagery of Arabs and Muslims has always been negative. It's always been like, these people are terrorists. They're the bad guys in the movies. They're whatever, you know, like and you can analyze like how they describe um, Arab and Muslim communities on the news and see that by and large, the overall stereotype is like violent and angry. And that's so contrary to what reality really is. And so it's just really important to me to continue to like remind folks, hey, these are just people and people want all people all over the world. I've already said this once, but all people all over the world just want the same things. We're all the same deep down, you know. And, yep. um, and it's easy to kill people if you don't think of them as human, if you just think of them as like video game targets that are like angry and yelling, sure. But if you think of somebody as an actual human being with feelings and hopes and dreams, somebody who went to college for a reason and somebody who's hoping to get married or has gotten married and has children and you you think about those things and then you realize that like every single one of those 21,000 people was a human being who wanted something out of life and didn't get to have it because they were just living in the wrong place. Yeah. And I mean to say wow that's just so deeply unfair. I mean what an understatement, but like what else what else is there? So yeah, it, it's been kind of, I guess my goal throughout the process um, to say, please don't forget that the people that are dying here are still human beings. And if you can see any of these awful things and just for a minute, put yourself in their shoes, then maybe that will mean something to somebody. I think that that is the message that people need to begin to hear. From my point of view, I see very little like ethnic dislike of Arabs or Muslims, but I see tremendous amount of fear of Arabs and Muslims yeah. among, among Americans. I'm sure you're very sensitive to these cliches and ugly stereotypes as all ethnic groups are about their own ethnic group. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I see is 
um, our media's constant hammering of the theme that Muslims are insane fanatics who want to blow up the world. Right. I mean, that's basically what all of our news channels from MSNBC to Fox News will say. And as I've said before on this podcast, when it comes to um, war and foreign policy, there is no difference between MSNBC and Fox News, equally pro-war. Um, they all preach the Islamophobia that, you know, for instance, the, the latest red herring, which is so prominent here in America, is that Hamas has this charter that says they will never, ever, 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 ever allow Israel to live in peace. Mm -hmm. And that they, you know, I think that I think most Americans think that every person in Gaza has a framed, you know, poster of this charter on their wall. And I point out to them that when I talk to my Arab friends, they don't talk about any so-called charter, just like we don't put congressional bills on our walls. I don't believe that um, the people of Gaza have a deep desire to hate Israel. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that, that is exploited by those who profit off of war and that the people of Gaza want their homes back, you know, but that it, these this is what's called peacemaking, yeah. diplomacy, compromise. The idea that there is no possible compromise because of this Hamas charter, this scary mythical Hamas charter. Do you know how many people in my community believe in this scary Hamas charter that prevents them from ever accepting Israel? You know, I first of all, I just believe that the people of Gaza will choose to compromise and the people of Israel will choose to compromise. Unfortunately, the least compromise has come from the Israeli side in the fanatical settler movement. So while they're there is this accusation that all Muslims are fanatical and extremist. Actually, the Israeli settler movement is fanatical and extremist, and I blame them for propping up Netanyahu's fascist government. Jeez, I should shut up. I just keep <laughs> no, I mean, it's a it's a subject that it's easy to get um, really worked up about. I, I agree with yeah. you. Uh, yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's I think the thing that's been really interesting to me is you like like you've said you um come from a community of folks that have like obviously um like there's a lot of feelings going on I think um and I see it among like friends of mine who are arab I see it way less among friends of mine who are white um mm. so um I feel not 100%, obviously, because there's no group that's 100% anything. But um, I find that I a lot of my posts are largely ignored, except by um, other Arab folks. Um, so that's... Yeah, uh, you're right. I think what you're pointing out, one of the things you're pointing out is that my view on this is is not based on my perspective as a so-called American, but as a Jew in New York where they took this super fucking hard. I, I think, yeah. well, yeah, I think that when you come out of a community of people that like have um, a stake in something, then you're obviously, I mean, in my opinion, I think you're going to be like, you're going to pay more attention to it. Yeah. Um, I guess is what I'm, what I'm going for. Not yeah. necessarily that you're going to feel one way or another. Cause I think that like, different people feel differently about it. You know, like I can't say that 
like Jewish folks are a monolith about oh, no. what's going on, you know, cause they're absolutely not. And I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm off. Maybe I'm I don't think you're off. off. No I don't reason know. you tell me, off. but I, you know, I think that Arabs have a, uh, Arabs also have a stake in it. I think, you know, people, you have feelings about it and, you know, seeing people who, um, I, I mean, I'm not Palestinian, but, you know, you see people who um, look similar to you or people that, you know, and they're out there like getting bombed to death and it does yep. affect you, Ish. you know? Um, and so it, it's sort of like when the Russia Ukraine thing first started happening, somebody said something and it was fairly boneheaded, but I, uh, they said, Oh, well, people will care about this one because um, Ukrainians are white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't remember who said that, but it, it blew up and it was like a thing that went viral for a couple of days. And, you know, I, I, I think that people do recognize themselves in things that they see and uh, it does raise their sympathies. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't or can't feel things for people who are different from them. But I think that things that you have ties to or stake a stake in, you automatically um, are going to pay the most attention yeah. to. Well, um, it's really interesting. I didn't, you know, I didn't even realize, Jamila, that this interview would be so much about an Arab talks to a Jew, you know, <laughs> in a way that is, I really was, but um, in a way, like, I have to say that the, the defining thing in the life of a Jew from New York is awareness of the Holocaust. We are taught mm -hmm. that before we are taught the Bible. We're taught the Holocaust from day one. Uh, mm -hmm. The generational trauma, and I don't think Jews are different from other, I think for African-Americans, it's slavery. For Palestinians, it's the Nakba. You know, for Armenians, it's 1915. So I actually think generational trauma is very common. <laughs> you know, that's an understatement. Mm -hmm. But for Jews, generational trauma is absolutely dominant. Um, and again, I'm generalizing, you know, disclaimer, this is Mark speaking for himself, you know, not for mm -hmm. any, we're here to tell yeah. the truth. We haven't even talked about how we met, which you alluded to. I know that you were born on September 11th because yeah. um, like my guest, Anamona Achnik from two months ago, I met you online on the Literary Kicks community, um, which mm -hmm. was my own blog. I say it as if it's on my <laughs> website, Literary Kicks. We did have a wonderful community with like thousands of members um, all over the world posting hundreds of posts a day for about three years before you and I and Karen, our other great friend, the three of us sort of together ran it, finally threw up our hands and said, we can't keep doing this anymore because I was going dead broke um and we were all driving each other crazy but yeah <laughs> but the reason we became fast friends because i had never heard of you on um september 11th but no let me remember this i, I can i wrote i wrote a poem yes um i wrote a poem about uh called september 11th birthday yeah. girl and it was about um well uh, as the title suggests about being having a birthday on September 11th, because that was, it was my 22nd birthday. Um, it was my 
Um, it was my first birthday, like post college. So it was like my first adult birthday. Um, and it was like, obviously like a very bad birthday as far as birthdays go. Um, you're right. And it was morning. You didn't even get to wake up to a nice. I, yeah, like I, um, so I was at the time I was, um, I had not found a job and I was at home and I, like just kind of wandered into the living room and turned on the TV and thought like, what is this weird thing on TV? And I changed the channel and it was just on every channel. And so I finally stopped and what, you know, took in the, the enormity of what the, what was going on. Um, you know, yeah. And you, and you wrote this poem, I believe it was the first thing you ever wrote on literary kicks. If not the first thing it was, it was definitely one of the first things for sure. I remember it. Well, I was trying to remember it. It was very good. And like you immediately were like, you know, made yourself known. Like, I think everybody hit you up with a lot of responses. We became fast friends. Um, and, and, and Karen did as well. And um, the three of us then, you you really helped run yeah, the site. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, like, to me, it was such a learning experience because I had, you know, never worked in, like, you both worked for... Um, on, I it. Yeah, and so you worked in online community and I had never done that. And so, like, learning, I just learned, I was learning everything as I went. And it was also just like a... a dumb 20 something like and I I wasn't like stupid but you know everybody's dumb when they're like (laughs) in their early 20s um and so there was I was I don't know I like um I was growing up (laughs) was growing up um while also running helping run lit kicks for sure yeah yeah it was wonderful and having three of us meant that we could you know take a vote yeah it was really you two against me (laughs) Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I should stop laughing because today we got some really sad news yeah. that Judy Weinstein Haggai, who was also a very big part of this poetry community or literary alternative community, um, we've been waiting to find out whether she is a living hostage, but she has been dead. Um, her death was just announced today. In fact, I was just flipping through cable news, which I do when I want to aggravate myself. Um, and actually on Fox news, they said her name Mm. and I was like, well, we did a whole episode on that with Anna Mona, another person who was part of this community. And anyway, what do you remember about Judy? Um, you know, honestly, she was one of the first people that welcome, she welcomed me. I think she was already kind of, she had been posting there for a while and, um, she, I remember she was just like so warm and great to talk to. And I felt welcomed by her like almost immediately. And um, I always just, yeah, I always just loved her posts um, because she, like, I, I definitely would use the word warmth to describe her but there was also like humor there and um humor sometimes about like uh fairly dark subjects such as like you know rockets flying overhead and whatnot you know and she could write a haiku about it and um sometimes 
I don't know. I just, she, she was, she was really one of a kind. And I, um, I got to talk to her once while she was with you guys, like you had done a reading in New York mm-hmm. and I wasn't able to come, but you called me. And so I was able to talk to her on the phone. It was the only time I ever spoke to her. Um, and yeah, she's, she was, I, it's just heartbreaking to think that, um, she's not among us anymore for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I had hoped that her natural peacemaking talents, cause she was from the heritage of when peaceniks would go to kibbutzes and try to make friends with Palestinians. That was her heritage from many, many, many decades ago. She was 70, but I had hoped that she was um, using her human relations skills, which were considerable, you know, mm-hmm. in a hostage situation. But now it does seem that she and her husband, who were shot on October 7th, might have been dead all along. I'm not sure why it took so long, but it is a very sad disappointment to those of us who, until today, um, this is December 28th, 2023, were hoping that she would be a hostage returned, as many hostages were returned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also want to say I met her husband, um, who also died. God, he, he, um, I, and I said this to Anamona after our podcast mm-hmm. because it was a little controversial to say before, but Judy was very warm. God, um, was not particularly interested in getting to know a, a Brooklyn Jew or a Queens Jew, you know, or a Long Island Jew. Um, I think he had the typical, I would say, machismo. Um, he wasn't really super friendly to me, probably because I'm great friends with his wife. You know, he was friendly. I'm sort of exaggerating, but I didn't get to know him. I later learned he's a jazz musician mm-hmm. and um, a very creative person himself. But, you know, he did like Judy and I um, and Karen and others did a big poetry reading, but he didn't get up and read a poem or anything. But yeah. I did meet God and I now. So we should pay tribute to, to God as well. But yeah, I mean, it's. Deeply sad, and I was I was like you, definitely hoping for a different outcome. And um, I'm I'm very sorry to know that that is not not the case. Well, um, this has been an amazing conversation, Jamila. You're you're so great to talk to. I mean, I think we've hit on a lot of major points, so I think that's good. I think it's been yeah. a lot. I mean, one of the things that. I get concerned about is I, you know, I obviously people leverage the, you know, calling people anti-Semitic if they disagree with um, what's happening in Israel. And I don't, I, it's it's very important to me not to come across that way because obviously I'm not like, but I don't think anybody's better than anybody. And so I'm not anti anyone, but I want to be careful sometimes that I don't say things that, anybody could misinterpret. Well, this is why it's so difficult to talk about all these topics. I mean, it takes a lot to avoid overgeneralizing whenever talking about anything. But let's remember that this is why war gets fueled so easily. One thing at World Beyond War, we talk about the systematic causes and the fact that it's so difficult to talk about war without making ethnic generalizations is one of the things that fuels war. Um, Again, it creates this fear. I would ask to any of my friends, Christian or Jewish friends who are Islamophobic, and there are many, I have to say, I hear a lot of Islamophobia. Um, To these friends, I would have to ask, 
why on earth would a kid in Gaza or an adult in Gaza spend any time hating Jews? Why? Like nothing better to do? Yeah. Like why would they, why would like what they would be hating is the people who are besieging them. They wouldn't care that they're Jews, you know? Right. Right. I, yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this I is would. what I was getting at with the Hamas charter. There is this belief among the extremists, the pro-war extremists here, here in America that, um, people in Gaza sit around plotting how to complete Hitler's mission. <laughs> Just such a right. cartoon, and such a stupid, stupid cartoon. I guess, you know, to me, it's just, it's so important to uh, like go back to the fundamental idea that everybody is a human. And if you can think about everybody as a human, regardless of um, what groups people may belong to, then it is both easier to um, level with people and harder to think of people as your enemy. Um, so, because nobody is inherently my enemy, right? Like, there's no group of people that I am just like, yeah, fuck those guys, right? Um, so, that speaking for myself, but um, there, yeah, there are people who will obsess over jealousies and develop enemies, you know, often because of jealousy or rivalry or fear. But yeah, that, I think that's a basic fact. And um, I have often pointed out because I've, I've spent a lot of time studying various genocides that genocides don't even coincide with hatred. I mean, people might be surprised to hear what I'm about to say, but even in the worst years of the Holocaust from 1942 to 1945, that was not done because people hated Jews. That was done because number one, Central Europe was had been besieged since 1939 and was the entire area of Central Europe was starved. Um, the fact that we were besieging Central Europe meant that the Jews would suffer the most. And that was a big explanation for the Holocaust. That was collateral damage to a absolute cataclysmic war. And furthermore, in Rwanda, one thing that's well documented is there was very little personal hatred between Hutus and Tutsis. Very little. They were often married, co-workers. What they had was tremendous fear. So that's another place where hatred of the other ethnic group was exploited by pro-war profiteers. Do you see that now in like people talking about the migrant caravans and everything else, you know, so like it's always just a there's always a way to make those guys over there the problem. And it's it's, it's stupid and it's reductive to think of anybody specifically as, you know, like any one group of people being like so backwards or stupid or wrong or dirty or whatever it is that people think um and then wanting to kill them as a result is really like that's just it's it's insane yeah or wanting to wanting to watch video on fox news of them um trying to cross rivers and almost dying because Fox News 
fixates on the ref so-called refugee crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Jamila. Like, we shouldn't <laughs> talk about all of these other war zones without talking about the war zone that is the U.S.-Mexico border, thanks to the incompetent policies of past presidents from Trump to Biden to, I don't even know how far back, but certainly the Trump administration made it worse. Um, the, I believe that there is a war on the, on the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's, it's undeclared and unknown, but it's very serious. Um, and we have to say that they are suffering the same hatred, the same deprivation. I think that likewise that, you know, you don't have to go, we don't have to look at Gaza to find people right. who can't get health care. I mean, that's, yeah. There, I think the the reality is the more you um, pay attention to these things, and so that's, I mentioned earlier, you kind of get like trauma burnout or trauma fatigue. Like there, there are so many things yeah. in the world like that are going on just right now. Like that, um, it, yeah, it can, it can be emotionally draining to, realize how many people are um suffering for um yeah like yeah for economic gain of other people like look at what's happening in congo or um thank you for and, mentioning that yes thank you and you know there's atrocities happening in sudan and you know so there's just yeah. like it's not hard to find um, something awful happening in the world, unfortunately. And um, I, I think that sometimes people um, don't pay attention because there's so much of it that it can be overwhelming. Unless we find a way to tackle the difficult task of systematic change, economic, systematic change, um, we're in trouble. And that's part of what we're about at World Beyond War. So like you and I and all our friends might even be able to realize that we're human. But the problem is that there's a profit motive. Um, you know, it's no accident that Yemen and Saudi Arabia are near oil, that Russia and Ukraine are near oil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is all about yeah. profit motive. So we can realize that people are human. We also need to realize that money is not worth killing each other over and that we are a greedy, greed-obsessed, money-corrupted, money-soaked society, especially here in America. And I got to say that when I insult Long Island, which I do lovingly because I'm from Long Island, it's because Long Island is one of the wealthiest parts of the world. We also have a tremendous refugee and immigrant conflict situation on Long Island. I live in Brooklyn. I don't live in Long Island anymore. One last thing that made uh, the crossed my mind while you were talking was that um, we're a few weeks away from Martin Luther King Day, uh, where people love to quote, I have a dream, but people don't like to think about the fact that, you know, like, near the end of his life, he was talking about the evil triplets of racism, um, economic exploitation and militarism. And so like, nobody quotes, nobody likes to quote that they just want to quote the, um, yes. you know, I have a dream about making kids holding hands with and that is unfair to do because he was definitely he was definitely onto something there and um it was so important and people like to ignore 
um, that he was speaking out against Vietnam. Against yeah, military. specifically. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. So why don't we wind up with that? And um, I will ask you later, Jamila, to email me any ideas for a song that we can play okay. to end this thing. It's really been great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. You know, I, I don't think we really had an agenda here. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, it's been it's been yeah. nice, and um, it's always good catching up with an old friend. And so this has been this has been nice. Thanks for having me. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. For this moment to rise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird fly for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.